Excited Utterance, The Evidence and Proof Podcast, Episode Number 40, Russell Covey, Recantations and the Perjury Sword. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang, from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. Our goal is to bring a virtual workshop to you every week throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Russell Covey. Russ is professor of law at Georgia State University, where he teaches criminal law and procedure. Russ's research focuses on wrongful convictions and plea bargaining, approached from an interdisciplinary perspective. He's currently co-editing a book on wrongful convictions entitled Reading Innocence, A Wrongful Convictions Reader. Our podcast today features Russ's article, Recantations and the Perjury Sword, which was published last year in the Albany Law Review. As its title states, the article deals with the intersection of witness recantation and perjury, and the implications of this intersection on accuracy and justice. For example, one natural way of thinking about the threat of perjury is that it discourages witnesses from making false accusations. That's obviously a good thing. But as Russ describes in the article, the flip side of this is that once an accusation is made, perjury also discourages witnesses from recanting. And now things get complicated. From a law enforcement perspective, perjury is an important tool for preventing witnesses from losing heart and retracting their accusations. Domestic violence cases come immediately to mind. At the same time, from a wrongful conviction perspective, perjury becomes a dangerous obstacle to accuracy since it prevents would-be witnesses from writing the record before it's too late. Russ, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's start where your article begins, which is with recantations generally. We, and here I'm basically referencing the general public and the legal world at the same time, we seem to be of two minds about recantations. On the one hand, a recanting witness is critical new evidence. If you think about any successful crime thriller, there's always a recanting witness. And then on the other hand, as you talk about, and I think rightfully so, courts are historically very skeptical about recantation evidence. So why are we of two minds about recantations? It's not surprising that courts would be skeptical of recantation evidence. After all, a witness who recants his trial testimony is an admitted liar, right? He or she lied at trial or for trial in, in some kind of sworn statement, or, she's, or he's lying now. So you begin with that presumption, and then you have to work from there. But there are some other reasons as well, and I think they have to go to you know, the cognitive bias of judges in the first instance who are experiencing things, you know, well-known sort of phenomena like tunnel vision and confirmation bias. They've oftentimes presided over the taking of the initial testimony in a pretrial hearing or at trial, and 
admitted it or at least didn't see fit to overturn conviction or allow the evidence into the record. And so now when that same witness is coming forward and, and saying, you know, look, I was lying. What I said wasn't true. That's going to sound problematic to a lot of people. I think just as a matter of human nature. Judges also place a high value on finality, and rightfully so. It costs a lot of money to conduct a criminal trial, and the threat of having to do it over again, naturally unpleasant, I'm sure, to the typical judge. And then finally, there's something that I would add is probably out there in a lot of cases, not every case, of course, but there is a kind of pro-prosecution bias that seems to be built into our criminal justice system, in part because a lot of judges or former prosecutors, but in part because I think judges see their job in important ways as maintaining law and order and putting the bad guys in jail. And so for some combination of all of those reasons, courts have traditionally been highly skeptical of recantation evidence. Now, you argue in your article that we shouldn't be as skeptical or not skeptical at all about recantation evidence. Why is that? I don't say that we should never be skeptical of recantation evidence. Like all testimony, it potentially false, but it's also potentially truthful. And so the question with respect to recantation evidence is, what are the merits of accepting it as valid? And there are a couple of things under the legal practices that we currently follow that I argue make recantation evidence in general perhaps more credible and reliable than other kinds of testimony. And specifically, I'm talking about the threat of perjury sanctions that any recanting witness faces when that witness gets on the witness stand or signs an affidavit affirming or swearing under oath that they had made a false statement previously under oath. And sort of other aspects of our evidence rules suggest that when a witness makes a statement against their interest, that that's a reason to lend that statement more credibility, not less. Let me push on you to develop that perjury angle. As you argue in the paper, perjury ends up being an important tool for prosecutors and law enforcement. It's important not just for the usual reason why we think perjury is important, which is to deter fraudulent complaints, but also to secure witnesses at trial or to secure their presence at trial. So tell us a little bit more about that. This refers to what I, I call in the article the perjury sword. And the perjury sword is the use of credible threats made by police or prosecutors to bring perjury charges or false statement charges, as the case may be, against a witness who proposes to recant his or her prior sworn statement or testimony. And that can work for good or ill. And so I argue, based on my study of wrongful convictions and exoneration cases that it oftentimes has been used for bad purposes by getting a witness to sometimes after several hours or more of potentially coercive interrogation tactics, get that witness on the record making an incriminating statement against another person, and then using the threat of perjury to make sure that that witness testifies consistently with that coerced statement in subsequent legal proceedings, like before the grand jury, and then again at trial, and then after trial. And so that's the perjury sword in its bad guise. Now, there's also arguments, and a lot of prosecutors, I'm sure, would be quick to make them, that the threat of perjury is essential 
for them to be able to do their job. And I think that there is certainly cases where that seems to be clear. Being able to threaten a witness with perjury if he or she wants to back out of testimony or statements that were made to law enforcement can be very useful, especially in cases where there's potential threats or coercion or fear of retaliation on the part of the witness that the defendant or the defendant's family or friends or fellow gang members might do harm to that individual. So there's actually a great book called Ghetto Side, written by Jill Levy, who does a fantastic job of depicting this problem in a very tangible way. Homicide investigators have an incredibly difficult time, especially in communities like, the book was about Watts in LA, in some low-income, high-crime areas because of the high level of distrust among members of the community towards law enforcement and their fear that if they are seen as cooperating with police or with law enforcement, that there will be retaliation. So putting together good cases in those communities can be incredibly difficult. And having the perjury sword available to try to create some extra incentives to keep those witnesses committed to giving truthful, incriminating testimony against their fellow community members can sometimes be very important. Here's an immediate question that springs to mind from that discussion. The problem is that we, in effect, want prosecutors to have the perjury sword and to use it when it is good, for lack of a better term, promoting accuracy, and we don't want them to use it when you're going to prevent a recantation that is truthful. Is there a reason to believe that prosecutors here are particularly bad judges of a witness's truthfulness? Because in many ways, you can think of prosecutors as modulating the use of the sword. So if you think that the witness is recanting only because of intimidation, then you break out the sword. If you think that the witness is recanting because really the witness had made it up or had given an unreliable statement in the first place, then you don't use it. Is the problem that prosecutors are simply overzealous, or is it that prosecutors just make too many mistakes in turning the screws on a reluctant witness? It's difficult to answer a question like that broadly because every case is different and every prosecutor is different. And I certainly work on the assumption that most prosecutors are honest and act with the highest integrity. But of course, some don't. And there is ample evidence out there now, especially as a result of empirical evidence that we've been gathering over the last couple of decades as a result of the exoneration cases, and particularly the DNA exoneration cases, that some prosecutors misuse evidence. They use unreliable evidence evidence and they use the perjury sword as a tool to get a conviction of an innocent person using evidence that otherwise might have been exposed as being faulty. As an anecdote, I did a quick search on the National Registry of Exonerations website, which catalogs what we know about exoneration cases more thoroughly than any other data set. And if you do a search on the word recant among cases where there have been documented false accusations and or perjury allegations as causes of the wrongful conviction, or at least factors of those wrongful convictions, more than 300 hits come up. Recanting witnesses 
are a common element of the wrongful conviction cases that we know about. And I think that that in and of itself is a reason to pay a little bit more attention to them, to start worrying about potential use of these recantations as red flags. Another thought I had on this issue is a potential connection, or maybe I should phrase it as a tension between perjury or the perjury sword and the confrontation clause. So much is made under Crawford about how confrontation is an important check of reliability. And what I think you're saying here is that because we have these strong perjury rules, the confrontation clause is almost a bit of a shell game. That confrontation only really gets you the ability to expose weaknesses in a witness's testimony on cross, but not that the face-to-face confrontation, as we often think about it, that this face-to-face confrontation will get the witness to balk or to recant, because the recantation part already is precluded by the perjury threat. Yes, I think that that's right. Of course, better to have cross-examination than no cross-examination of a witness who is being untruthful, or at least is alleged to being untruthful. But a witness who gets on the witness stand and testifies out of fear of going to prison if they diverge from the script is a witness who's highly unlikely to simply fess up and say, ah, yeah, I was, you know, actually I was lying. I do think that where the incentives are arrayed towards being untruthful, the cross-examination may not be an effective way to overcome those incentives. Let me move to the hard question now. What do we do with this dilemma? So we need the perjury sword in some places, but not others. We can't really rely on prosecutors to do the self-policing. What should we do about it? So in the article, I suggest a couple of solutions that I think could make some difference, which I would describe as, you know, in the first case, reducing a recanting witness's exposure to perjury charges. I think that would be important. And then making it easier for convicted defendants to use recantation evidence if they secure it. And then third, finding ways to get courts to reconsider how they evaluate recantation evidence that's before them. To start with first of those three, we could reduce a recanting witness's exposure to perjury by barring the filing of perjury or false statement charges against a witness who's allegedly made a false statement at or prior to trial. Do you have concerns, though, that this might open the door to more false allegations that you lose the deterrence factor of the perjury charge? Sure. I mean, that's the downside. And this is going to be a tricky balance. And there is, there's no question that prosecutors would lose some leverage to ensure that witnesses testify consistent with what they've said previously. Now, I think that there are things that we could do, certainly at the pretrial level or at trial, to make this less of a concern for prosecutors. First, we could ensure that prosecutors can admit any inconsistent statement in evidence, and the jury can be the fact finder and decide which of the accounts provided by any testifying witness are more credible, the pretrial statement or the statement that's being made at trial. That's one way to get around the problem, or at least to mitigate the problem. Let me be precise here. So what you're arguing for is A change basically in the hearsay rule suggesting that the pretrial statement can be admitted as actual substantive evidence. And then, of course, 
you have the recanting witness who is now freed because there is no perjury charge or perjury charge that can be brought. That way, the prosecution is still able to get some of that evidence, but it's now tainted or weakened by the fact that there's a recanting witness. Exactly. And I think some states already do allow prosecutors to put in prior inconsistent statements as substantive evidence. I believe Illinois is an example. So I don't think that this is particularly radical. And in any event, I think most jury experts would say that there's not really that much substantive difference between allowing a statement in for impeachment purposes and allowing it in for substantive purposes from the perspective of the jury jury's going to hear the evidence and it's going to act based on its credibility determination regardless. Your article also draws a distinction between pre-trial solutions and post-trial solutions. Why does that distinction matter? First, legal situation at trial or during the pre-trial stages is much more fluid than it is post-conviction. And the defendant has the advantage of having a jury or a fact finder of some sort able to make credibility determinations on the, you know, based on the context and all of the, the totality of the facts that have put before that fact finder. And so nuanced judgments are more likely to be correct in that context. There's a technical legal answer to this question as well. There is, in many jurisdictions, a recognized recantation defense, the purpose of which is to make it easier for people to recant false prior statements without having to fear negative consequences. But the recantation defense is, for the most part, strictly limited to statements that have been made before they've had detrimental effect. If you take back a statement that was made pretrial that you're now admitting was false, the recantation defense might protect you. But after conviction has occurred in virtually every jurisdiction that recognizes the recantation defense, it wouldn't apply because there has, uh, there's been a detrimental effect. There would be no defense to a perjury charge. If you think about it, there are some different considerations that are going to apply pre-trial and post-trial. I mean, pre-trial, a witness who testifies falsely as a result of use of the perjury sword has threats that are fresh in his or her mind. They might just have recently been interrogated by the police. They may have been some threats to bring criminal charges against those witnesses if they didn't implicate their colleagues. And those memories and the reality of the, the state acting on such threats is going to diminish the further you get from the events post-trial. There's also a different legal standard that, that's going to apply for defendants, right? So pre-trial or at trial, the state has the burden to prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. After a conviction, the burden shifts to the convicted defendant to prove innocence. And so the presumption is going to be that the verdict was valid. Final question for you. Okay. So what's next? What work remains to be done in this area, either by you or others? Innocent scholarship, which has really blossomed in the last two decades, has revealed that huge number of old assumptions that the legal system has operated under about the reliability of evidence and the effectiveness of procedural mechanisms that we use to evaluate that evidence are faulty and need updating. For example, I mean, a lot of research has shown that eyewitness identifications, hair analysis, fingerprints, 
bite marks, ballistics, so the whole bevy of different kinds of evidence that are typically used in criminal cases is far less reliable than we ever thought it was. And there's a lot of legal research and, and scholarship that shows that juries don't do a good job of following jury instructions and that cross-examination is not the effective engine for truth discovery that we always assumed it was. The assumption that recantations are inherently untrustworthy, I think, fits into this category of old assumptions that may need rethinking. So I think my work is to continue with this enterprise to try to challenge some of these assumptions in order to make our criminal justice system more reliable and less prone to error than it's proven to be. Well, Russ, thanks for giving your thoughts on Witness Recantations. It was great having you on the show. Well, thanks for having me. It was my pleasure to be here. One of the aspects that drew me to Russ's article is the double-edged nature of what he describes as the perjury sword. Perjury is an important tool in the legal system. It tries to ensure truthful witness testimony in the first instance, and it can also help guard against witness intimidation and other efforts to obstruct justice. At the same time, the perjury sword can run amok. If used indiscriminately by prosecutors, perjury can effectively lock in unreliable witness testimony by preventing recantation. As we discussed in the interview, perjury also has the potential to turn trial into theater. The prevalence of pretrial statements means that witnesses are effectively locked into their story by the perjury sword. As a result, the Confrontation Clause loses a lot of its bite. The ability to confront witnesses is now even less productive than we had already thought. In many ways, Russ's solution is both simple and counterintuitive. If we do away with perjury for recantations, while allowing substantive use of the pretrial statement, maybe we can actually have our cake and eat it too. We prevent recanting witnesses from being gagged by the threat of perjury. At the same time, we enable prosecutors to still use the pretrial evidence, appropriately discounted. The prosecution and the defense both give up something. The prosecution gives up its perjury sword, the defense, its ability to keep out pretrial statements. But in the end, the accuracy of the system might actually improve. And ironically, it improves not because we now have more evidentiary regulation. Instead, it improves because we actually take those constraints away. That does it for this week's episode of Excited Utterance. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the Vanderbilt Institute for Digital Learning. The associate producers are Alex Nunn and Margot Wilkinson-Smith, and the production editor is Carson Smith. Additional production assistance is provided by Aaron Parr Carranza, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir, under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join me again next week when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.